Hello there and welcome into another edition of The Intersection with conversation about a variety of topics, including news, information, and lifestyles approached from a Christian worldview perspective. First up on this podcast, mother-son writing team Karen Kingsbury and Tyler Russell, who have crafted another novel for young readers that features members of the Baxter family as children, pointing to how the characters navigated a transition in the life of their family. Then it's John Eldridge who believes that exposure to the internet and social media has adversely affected our lives and how we can reclaim the life that God intends for us to enjoy. Then shifting back to highlights from the 2020 National Religious Broadcasters Christian Media Convention in Nashville, Tracy Lynn Russell visited with me there. She has a workshop and has quite an amazing story of God's faithfulness. She married Mark, they got a divorce, and then God brought them back together and they remarried. Find out more coming up. And on this edition of The Intersection, the Gideons International is an organization that has been devoted to the spread of God's word and the ministry continues to impact lives through God's truth. Dan Highway is leading the Gideons now. You'll get a chance to hear from him ahead. Plus, at Faith Radio Meeting House Media Central at NRB, Richard Land of Southern Evangelical Seminary provided analysis of trends and culture and how Christians can be responsive to what they're observing. Finally, it's Penny Nance of Concerned Women for America. She and the organization were involved in a rally at the U.S. Supreme Court recently, the day justices held oral arguments in the case of a Louisiana law that requires so-called abortion doctors to have hospital-admitting privileges. This is The Intersection, a production of The Meeting House. I'm Bob Crittenden. Karen Kingsbury and son Tyler Russell have released the second book in the Baxter Family Children series, which is tailored for middle-grade children. It's entitled Finding Home, a Baxter Family Children's Story, centered around the family's move from Michigan to Indiana. With some insight on the book and its themes, here are Karen Kingsbury and Tyler Russell. Yeah, I think Origins is actually mm-hmm. really true. I mean, we kind of said, you know, what, what would you have Ashley who, you know, has some struggles as she grows up, but then she also is an artist. So where did that begin? How was it for her to, uh, you know, be someone who was actually drawing pictures as a kid when she did, you know, in Finding Home, she has so many funny moments. And one is uh, she flies off of the inner tube on Lake Monroe and does a full, complete cartwheel on the water, uh, which she hopes is an Olympic sport. Uh, she'd really like to be able to do it again, but she actually ends up drawing a picture of it, and the kids are going to love that. They really they told us when they wrote in, a lot of them, that the pictures were where they really found the connection. So uh, we're excited that the book has that a lot of that this time. Well, people that have read maybe one or more of the Baxter family novels know that these are set primarily in Bloomington, Indiana, home of the Indiana University Hoosiers and in, in this particular book, this new book called Finding Home, Tyler, this actually goes back to the time when the Baxter family actually, as we might say, relocated to Bloomington. What sort of challenges did they find with respect to moving to this new locale? Yes. Yeah, so, I mean, that that's kind of this whole central, you know, part of, of, of this book is coming into a new town, starting a new school, meeting new neighbors. And for this Baxter family, it's it's kind of that question of can a new house ever really become a home? Um, and so these kids have to kind of, you know, say goodbye to the only life that they've known and, and then start over. And I think that that's so relatable because, you know, whether people are moving now or have moved before, we all know what that feels like to have to um, go through some of those challenges of, of growing up and 
and meeting new friends and, and starting over. So I think as they settle into Bloomington, they all adjust in, in different ways. If people have been exposed to the Baxter family, they know that this is a home that has some wonderful dynamics, of course, based on a firm foundation of faith. So, Tyler, what makes the Baxter home so special? Mm. Well, I think the Baxter home is so special because it it is a safe place, not only for the, the kids in the family to ask the hard questions and to express you know, their fears and, and frustrations, but also for their friends and for, for people who, who come into the home. Um, the parents, John and Elizabeth, they they know how to create a, a space for communication and and to have that time during dinner to talk and to ask questions and to be intentional. And so um, they, they know how to get deep, but then they also know how to laugh. And I think we see in this book, um, a little sneak peek would be that the kids are planning a birthday surprise for their mom, and it does not go well at all. Um, things get burned, um, food gets burned, uh, one of their gifts gets broken, and so. But they they learn to laugh it off and, and enjoy the fact that life is too short to be too serious about some of those things. And so, I think the Baxter family house is truly a home um, because of the memories that they make and because who they are. And I think that that as people read this, they'll find that it really isn't the place that is the home, but it's the people there. It's the memories that they make there. Um, and that that really came from, you know, growing up in my parents' home. They, they created a place that was that exact way. And so that was fun, too, for us to talk about me and my siblings growing up and borrowing some themes and stories there. And that definitely have influenced and inspired the Baxter family. You know, it's interesting, after writing so many stories about them as adults and knowing that this home has been in their family for so many years, current day, um, as I, it, it makes the story so much more rich that as I'm reading that first draft, I really find myself wiping tears just because I, I am actually seeing the memories being made that they'll draw, they'll look back on 20 years later. So I know what's going to happen 20 years later. I know the path and journey, the hardships and trials they're going to have to go through. And this becomes that, that, I mean, Tyler said it well, it's a safe place. It's a respite. It's a place where they can uh, feel the bonds of family and faith. They can pray together, cry together, laugh together. And the walls hold those memories. I mean, the walls have seen all of this as we look at current day Baxters. So going back and seeing them actually develop the fabric of their faith and family in the walls of this home that was incredible and, and you know this is, a, this is a house that has a beautiful porch around it so people can step out on the porch and have these deep communications karen kingsbury and tyler russell here on the intersection find out more by going to the website karenkingsbury.com next up on this edition of the intersection from the ministry of ransomed heart john eldridge shared about material related to his book get your life back everyday practices for a world gone mad dealing with how to reclaim the life god intends in a world dominated by the internet and social media here now is john eldridge it's the perfect storm right now the perfect storm of the world is it's the pace of life uh everyone's running so hard so fast but then you have uh, we're so dialed into technology right now. We're you know we're spending five to nine hours a day on our phones, and we check our phones 80 times a day, and it's just nuts. But then you have the the third thing, Bob is, and you're very dialed into this is the is the wave of information that's coming to us from all over the world. You know we're just exposed 
to too much where you know you, you know about the tragedy in Syria and the earthquakes in Turkey and you know what the Russian prime minister is doing and now you know about you know the latest deaths you know in the COVID-19 virus and it, it overwhelms the soul and, and there's just a there's a madness there's a chaos to our hour that I began to I began to watch the effect on me uh, and that's actually where the book came from I didn't like what it was doing to me and I said to myself, I got to get out of this madness. Mm. And John, I have to admit here that I'm I'm sitting here in my office and there is a computer screen directly in front of me to the side. There's the computer on which this interview is being processed. I got a phone sitting right in front of me. I guess I'm a poster child, if you will, for what you're talking about. And we're in this information age and there's such a flow of information and people can manipulate the information that we receive. So how do we filter it? Well, you know, I think I think we need to begin to set some healthy boundaries for ourselves because what what's happened is, you know, we're all plugged in and, and it's taking away time from us that used to be time to just be human, you know, to read a book, to make a meal, to have a conversation with a friend, like all that, all that's gone. Like I, I, I used to be a big reader. I'm not reading much anymore. I I'm too much online. Mm. And so Here's what I began to do. I, I noticed that the first thing I do in the morning is I look at my phone. It's the very, it was a habit. It was just a knee-jerk reaction. Just wake up, look at my phone. But the problem is then I'm in the matrix. I mean, it's over. <laughs> I, I'm already, you know, it's the news flash. It's the text that I got in the middle of the night. It's the crisis email. So here's, I, I'm doing some simple things like I don't check my phone first thing in the morning. I, I make a cup of coffee. I look out the kitchen window. I say some prayers. I just allow a little bit of space outside the chaos. And then what my wife Stacy and I are doing in the evening, somewhere towards the end of the day, maybe 8 p.m., phones go off. And for the last hour of the day, we get to be human beings again. We, you know, we play a game together. We talk. We take a walk together. Just creating a little bit of margin has actually been absolutely wonderful. Wow. What is what you call a one-minute pause? What does that look like? What can that do for us? Oh, it's so amazing, Bob, because the human being, God made us, he created us for Sabbath. He created us for Shabbat. And the Hebrew word actually means to stop. We are meant to stop. We're not supposed to be running constantly. And I realize I just run all day. I just go from meeting to phone call to email. to you know. And Jesus said, John, I want you to stop. And we're going to start with one minute. I want you to take a one-minute pause. So a couple times during the day, 60 seconds. Anybody can do this. It's so easy. 60 seconds, you stop. And, and when, what's fascinating is the brain research shows if you will stop during your day, if you will pause, get off your phone, you know, get out of the chaos, pause. It actually is a biological reset. You come out mm. of it with more concentration. But for me, it's the moment to find God again in my day. I, I, I'm running so fast, I can't pay attention to him. So I, 60 seconds. Here's the fun thing, Bob. This has become so popular. We built an app around it. It's a free app called the One Minute Pause. 40,000 people have downloaded this app. All right. To I know. To <laughs> learn how to pause in their day. 
Isn't that wonderful? John Eldridge here on The Intersection. You can find out more by going to the website ransomedheart.com. Next up on this edition of The Intersection podcast from Faith Radio Meeting House Media Central at the 2020 National Religious Broadcasters Convention in Nashville, Tracy Lynn Russell, creator of the Art of My Story workshop and the host of the Heart of My Story podcast, shared about her marriage, divorce, and remarriage to her husband and encouraged people to share the story of how God has worked in their lives. From that conversation, this is Tracy Lynn Russell now. God moves into the story of our life, and it was so neat. He was invited to a Bible study. He could not get this guy off his back, and he tried so many excuses, but finally this man just said, hey, come to a Bible study with me. And a guy stood up, and he said, I'm so sorry. Our main speaker's not here. All I have is my personal story. And he started sharing from the heart about how a man can really deal with tough sins. And Mark, for the first time, heard a man speaking transparently about the struggle of lust, of pride, of how he could deal with those things. And he realized that through the power of Jesus, he could get over that mountain of sin instead of just walking away. And I think so many times in our marriages, when we hit those problems, we want to just walk away and say, oh, it wasn't meant to be. That person wasn't right. I never should have married him. But Jesus Christ can help us move through those things. And he's paid the price for those sins and we can trust him to help us heal. Tracy Lynn Russell joining us today here on The Meeting House on Faith Radio, NRB 2020 in Nashville. Well, you mentioned an interesting, uh, a little full circle thing, just as an outside observer. It wasn't too long ago, just a matter of weeks that you appeared on Dr. James Dobson's Family Talk radio program. You mentioned the book, Love Must Be Tough. And tell me the principal thing you learned from reading that book. Well, the principal thing that I learned is that godly Christian men and women can be completely grounded in their faith and be tough. And in those situations where we're dealing with a tough marital situation where someone won't change or someone doesn't want to change, I often say there's two things, resistance and distance. Those things are really deadly in a marriage when someone's resisting change and they're distancing themselves and you really can't bring them around. We can be tough. We can, I actually read my husband a letter and I said, I love you so much. I'll always honor our marriage vows, but if you do not want to be married and you do not want to raise the son that we have, you'll need to go and um, live your life. And I really stood my ground on that and I fully intended that if God that God was with me and that he was going to work in my husband if he was wanting to save the marriage that can be a very difficult thing to do to really trust the Lord because if you're committed to your marriage vows and seeing your marriage work there's obviously a tendency to get in there and fix it let's work it out let's somehow make this happen right. and and repair everything but what right. you did was you allowed Mark to you let him go And even, as I understand it, after he really began to move back toward the Lord, it wasn't exactly, and they lived uh, happily ever after at that point. Nope. And I want to tell our listeners, there are two responses to fear. There is, you know, fight, flight, and freeze. And I just really, at first I was, you know, running for help. And then when I found out that there had been unfaithfulness, I was in fight mode. I got mad. I got ticked off. And I did not like this story that God had signed me up for. And I I turned to my husband, I think it was on Valentine's Day, and I just said, I am so sorry. You know, I was waiting around for this marriage to turn around. I'm so sorry you made these bad decisions, but we're getting a divorce and it's over. It is over. We're done. And my uncle, who was the pastor who married us the first time, he called me and said, but wait, Tracy, because I've seen God work in very difficult marriage stories before. And I said, I don't like this story, Uncle John. I'm done and I'm getting my divorce. But as you know, the divorce 
divorce didn't solve my problems. It didn't empower me as a woman. It didn't make me stronger. It literally rotted my heart out. But the Lord was still so faithful to me, even in that. All right. So how did things come back together? Well, I wanted to share that my husband did become a believer and I was still in bitterness, but we had godly people in both of our lives that shared their stories with us. And um, actually, Promise Keepers. Do you remember Promise Keepers? Absolutely. Okay. So my husband, ex-husband at the time, came over my house before Promise Keepers, opened his wallet, and he had a picture of us from our wedding day in it still. And I said, hey, buddy, get rid of the picture. It's not going to happen. Give me my alimony check. And he said, you know what, Tracy, someday God's going to show you that I am the husband and the father I was meant to be. And he's going to show you I've changed. And I said, whatever, you know. And so we went our separate ways. I got in the car. He went to Washington. And on the radio, I heard that day, um, I was just listening to beautiful praise music. And all of a sudden they said, we're broadcasting live from Promise Keepers. Men, get out a picture of your wife from your wallet because today is the day God's going to make you the husband and the father you were meant to be. And I thought, oh my goodness, all the running, all the retaliating, all these ways I thought this man was going to change. And here the Lord was connecting us through Christian radio from miles away. And I was able to see that moment when my husband, he said he held up that picture. And I, I heard the groan of hundreds of men that day just repenting about the sin of um, not being the husband and the father they were supposed to be. So he came back from that. He got on his knees and he said, Tracy, I want to be that father and that husband to you. Will you marry me again? And don't trust me. Trust Christ in me. Tracy Lynn Russell here on The Intersection. Find out more by going to Tracy, T-R-A-C-E-Y, Lynn Russell.com, or you can visit SaveMyMarriageStory.com. This is the Intersection Podcast, a weekly production of The Meeting House. Learn more when you visit meetinghouseonline.info. You'll find a link to the Media Center marked Meeting House On Demand, through which you can listen to or download full conversations with recent guests featured on The Intersection Podcast. You can also find the podcast in the Media Center or subscribe via iTunes. Two blogs are accessible. One is The Three with three stories of relevance to the Christian community, and the other is The Front Room with devotional thoughts and commentary from The Meeting House. And you can follow me on Twitter and access The Meeting House Facebook page. Plus, there's a link to video content, including recently added content from NRB 2020. Again, you can go to meetinghouseonline.info or visit the programming section at faithradio.org. Conversations from the Meeting House can also be found through the Faith Radio app and a variety of podcast platforms. Learn more when you visit meetinghouseonline.info or when you go to faithradio.org in the programming section. The International Executive Director of the Gideons International, Dan Highway, visited Faith Radio Meeting House Media Central at the 2020 National Religious Broadcasters Convention. He shared about his own interaction with the Gideons and provided an update about the current work of the ministry, which is centered on spreading God's word. From that conversation at NRB, this is Dan Highway. You know, the, the hotel ministry remains a very viable ministry for us, and it is what we're probably best known for. Uh, it's a place that many people uh, encounter a word, the word of God, and they may not have encountered the word of God in any other place in life. Uh, it's not unusual for us to get uh, somebody that writes in and tells us that they actually opened up that Bible and began to read it and uh, that they came to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. Uh, so we believe in the hotel ministry. We continue to work that. It's actually, believe it or not, less than 10% of the scriptures that go out in a span of a year. About 75% of the scriptures that we offer go into the hands of the next generation uh, through distributions in school or uh, the fairs and festivals that we go to or colleges and universities. Uh, the last five years, we've been averaging more than 80 million copies of the Word of God each year. 
And if you think about 75% of that going into the hands of the next generation, it's 60 million youth being touched by a copy of the Word of God each year. So the hotel ministry is a, a big part of what we do. Youth is a big part of what we do. We actually challenge men to, to go into the local prisons. Uh, and so our, our ministry, the men and their wives, uh, to the women's side of the prison, uh, going in and actually offering copies of the Word of God there and sharing a witness when they have an opportunity. We go to the military and offer copies of the Word of God to the military. And we also go into the medical community, hospitals, nursing homes, doctor's offices, uh, placing God's Word there for people that might be facing a, a situation, a medical situation that causes them to begin asking, what is the meaning of life? And God's Word is there. We claim the promise of Isaiah 55:11. by the way, that God's Word does not return void without accomplishing that for which He sent it. And as we place God's Word out, men, women, boys, and girls come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Well, there is an initiative, and I want you to elaborate just a bit, as far as sharing the Bible with students all across America. Public school students are part of that. It's called the Life Book Movement. So elaborate just a bit on how you're seeing God at work there. Yeah, this uh, started a little over a decade ago, actually, uh, primarily here in the United States. And uh, we were seeing schools begin to close down to us, uh, schools that we've been in since the 1940s. Um, And so venues were actually beginning to close. The leadership of the ministry uh, formed a team and said, hey, let's see what God might do. And uh, we actually, you know, in looking at the laws and and what is allowed and actually um, figuring out how you actually get a word of God into the schools, we developed this model. It's kind of a peer-to-peer movement. You can go to thelifebook.com and learn more about the movement. But we actually offer the life book. It's, it's a book that has kind of a summary of the Old Testament, has a copy of the Gospel of Mark in there, and then a little bit more information to challenge somebody to make a decision for Jesus as their Savior and Lord in the back. But, but we, go, we take the life book, we give it to the local church, allow them to work with their youth, and allow the youth to actually go and do peer-to-peer witnessing, sharing Jesus with their friends in the school that, that they attend. Uh, over that 10-year period that we've been offering the LifeBook mo- movement, by the way, more than 40 million copies of the LifeBook have gone out. Uh, it's an absolutely astounding from startup to, to get to where we are today. We, we occasionally actually get youth that write into us. Uh, we had one young woman named Danielle that wrote in. She was walking down her school hallway and saw a book laying on the floor and couldn't understand why it was there. She reached down and picked it up. It was a copy of the LifeBook. And as Danielle read that, she encountered Jesus, and uh, she asked him to forgive her for her sin and made a decision to make him her Savior and her Lord. And so we're just thankful that God's opened this door for us. Um, We're getting a lot of feedback from youth pastors, by the way, of the impact that it has on their youth to actually be challenged to go and be a witness about Jesus to their friends. And so it's got multiple benefits, uh, both within the youth group, but also to the target audience of those that it's reaching. Dan Highway here on The Intersection. Find out more about the ministry by going to gideons.org. More now from NRB 2020. Richard Land, president of Southern Evangelical Seminary in Charlotte, offered a biblical perspective on certain cultural trends. From that conversation, this is Richard Land now. So as we talk about motivating Christians to be involved in the public square, 
I think it's very important, and we can see some of the polling data with respect for, uh, to the next generation, the younger generation, and some of the, the different philosophies that they are embracing. There's a huge debate, and I think we want to touch on it here in our conversation today, about the whole nature of socialism. And I'm sure that there are some things that you would have to say about what a socialistic form of government looks like versus the uh, the democratic or the constitutional type of government that we have here in America. It seems to me that they are somewhat like oil and water. Well, if you're a Christian and you believe the Bible uh, and you're a socialist, then you're schizophrenic because socialism is based upon the belief that men are created basically good or at least neutral and that they will work according to their ability and just receive according to their need. Um, that's not the way human beings are. And every socialist government in history has failed. Um, it is only capitalism that produces wealth. All socialism does is argue over how you're going to divide uh, a never-increasing pie. Capitalism makes pies. Makes pies, yes. And then you can have a discussion about how the wealth gets distributed. Uh, I think Winston Churchill said it best, as he often did. He said the weakness of the capitalist system is that it inequitably distributes the fruits of its system. The weakness of the socialist system is that it equally distributes the miseries of its system. And that's exactly right. I mean, yeah, uh, England went from the richest country to the poorest country in Western Europe when it had a 30-year experiment with socialism. Socialism has never worked anywhere in the world at producing wealth. All it does is produce misery, and it produces increasingly, it produces um, a dictatorial government. Um, you know, we, we believe men are basically not good. They're sinful. That's why they're not going to work unless they get to keep a lot of what they, they make. But also, that's why we have the system of checks and balances we have, because our, our forefathers understood that, that government would try to aggregate power to itself. And so we have three different branches of government competing for power and competing with each other and watching each other. And it's sort of divide and conquer uh, to keep us from having despotism. So as we look at socialism, and, and we also hear a number of terms such as cultural Marxism and these different philosophies that are, that are of the same ilk, and the younger generation seems to be gravitating toward those. Why do you think that is? As someone that, well, they've been brainwashed. Yeah. They've been brainwashed. Uh, if you've sent your children to public schools, if you've sent your children to public colleges or private colleges, unless it's a very special Christian college, um, they've been brainwashed. That's what they've been taught by... Uh, by people who have been giving out propaganda to them as fact, and they don't know their history. And if you don't know history, you're, you're bound to repeat it. As Mark Twain said, history doesn't repeat itself, but it often rhymes. <laughs> and, and um, you know, people, yeah. they don't know about uh, our system of government. They don't know about uh, world history. They don't know about the failures of communism and the excesses of communism in Russia and China and Venezuela and Cuba and Nicaragua. Uh, they, don't, they don't know about it. They don't know how it's failed every time it's been tried. So uh, I would say that, that uh, our, our young people, we've failed our young people by allowing them to be propagandized in, 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 in the public schools and in colleges, and we need to rectify that. Richard Land here on The Intersection. Find out more by going to the website ses.edu. Finally, on this edition of the Intersection Podcast, it's Penny Young-Nance, CEO and President of Concerned Women for America. She shared about a Louisiana law heard by the U.S. Supreme Court on March 4th of this year requiring so-called abortion doctors to have hospital admitting privileges. She also commented on rallies held outside the high court, including one in which CWA participated. 
Here now from that conversation is Penny Young Nance. The practice of Planned Parenthood in the abortion industry is to take $300, $500, $600 from a woman, do butcher her, remove her unborn child, and then in some cases she's injured and can completely walk away without actually having any follow-up for her care, having any responsibility for the damage that they have done to her body. And this piece of legislation in Louisiana writes that wrong. But you see the abortion industry, you know, really show their hand in that they do not want to take responsibility for women. They do not really care about what happens to a woman after an abortion because they don't want the requirement for the doctor to have to follow up with her. Well, and as we look at this particular case out of Louisiana, making its way all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court, there was similar legislation that was passed by the Texas legislature a number of years ago. The Supreme Court actually struck that down. It was after the death of Justice Scalia. It was a 5-3 to three vote. You had Justice Kennedy, who was on the court at that time. This, of course, was before President Trump was elected, and therefore Neil Gorsuch and Brett Kavanaugh not on the Supreme court are there some i know i have heard that there are some differences between this louisiana bill and the texas law but i think there's also the the tremendous difference in the makeup of the court since then so comment on that if you would well you know there are some differences but i think the most notable difference is you have a, a different court hearing this and you know this is a moment where we need to recognize that elections have consequences remember president trump appointed 192 lower court judges these are constitutionalist judges and two of course you've already mentioned supreme court justices um and you know everyone recognizes that there's been a change including senator schumer which is why he called out and tried to intimidate neil gorsuch and brett kavanaugh you know the American people spoke very clearly in the 2016 election. Part of what the president ran on was his list of judges, his list of potential Supreme Court nominees, and the American people responded accordingly. But now you have the Democrats, specifically Chuck Schumer, who are trying to um, voice their will, intimidate, and pressure the court into walking away from being um, originalists, being constitutionalists, who recognize within the Constitution the right to life. Prior to the hearings, the oral arguments that were held, Penny, you and other like-minded organizations held a Protect Women, Protect Life rally on the steps of the Supreme Court. So tell us about the, the scene that morning. Yes, Bob, you know, it's really, and I would urge your listeners, if they've never participated with Concerned Women for America and others in a pro-life rally, they need to do that. To be, you know, a pro-life activist, if you consider yourself a pro-life activist, you have to participate, and we really need all the help we can get out there. But we did have a wonderful group of people, and you have two, two groups of people side by side outside the Supreme Court. Um, and this is during, actually, the oral arguments before the, the, the lawyers come out and come to the microphones. There's a group of people always on, on the abortion cases, sometimes in other social issues cases, in which people are gathering. And you have both sides present. And Concern Women for America and others, um, you know, Students for Life, uh, the March for Life, others were on one side of the, of the court. 
And then side by side on the other side of the court is Planned Parenthood and the abortion activists. Simultaneous rallies, loud, <laughs> a little chaotic, are going on. It, it, it's, it's, it is loud, it is chaotic, but it, it's also for me very hopeful because it is part of what I love about this country that we can all freely go out and advocate for our beliefs without any fear and, and stand there and, and proudly proclaim the right to life. And so um, anyway, at the same time, while I'm speaking at this rally, Chuck Schumer is beside me over, you know, there's kind of a wall of people between us and very notably threatening two Supreme Court justices um, outside the court while they're hearing the arguments on the inside. Penny Nance here on The Intersection. Find out more about the organization by going to concernedwomen.org. We are near the end of this week's edition of The Intersection Podcast, the weekly production of The Meeting House. Learn more by going to meetinghouseonline.info or the programming section at faithradio.org. You will find a link to the Media Center through which you can listen to or download full conversations with recent guests featured on the Intersection Podcast. The podcast is available through the Media Center, and you can subscribe via iTunes. Two blogs are accessible. One is The Three with three stories of relevance to the Christian community, and the other is The Front Room with devotional thoughts and commentary from The Meeting House. And you can follow me on Twitter and access The Meeting House Facebook page. Plus, there's a link to video content, including recently added video content from the National Religious Broadcasters Convention in Nashville. Conversations from The Meeting House can also be found through the Faith Radio app, as well as a variety of podcast providers, including iTunes, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and TuneIn. Learn more when you go to meetinghouseonline.info or the programming section at faithradio.org. Thanks for joining me for this edition of the Intersection Podcast. I'm Bob Crittenden.